Well, today we begin a new journey. It is a journey in the Sermon on the Mount. You might know that that is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Fear not, we're going to break it up into sections. You're not stuck in the Sermon on the Mount for the next two years or whatever like that. We'll break it up and uh, hopefully these well-known teachings of Jesus will become even more personalized in our life. Because as we read this, we, the Lord reveals to us various things. So I've entitled this series, um, like a number of people have, it's not original with me, but Best Sermon Ever. One of our members came up and she thought at first I was going to preach my best sermon ever this morning. She, and then she realized it was Sermon on the Mount and that took all the pressure off. I said, good thing, all right? We're not talking about pastor's best sermon ever, okay? Speaking of sermons, just a little levity for a minute. Uh, Lifeway Research uh, recently, a while back, did a uh, research project on length of sermons. So I should get through this pretty quick, right? So it's not too long. Ask pastors. When pastors, Protestant pastors, were asked how long their typical sermon is, 85% of them said less than 40 minutes. 22% 22% said 15 to less than 20, liars. Uh, 26% said 20 to less than 30 minutes. 28% said 30 to less than 40 minutes. And out on the fringes, 9% said less than 15 minutes. I'm like, that's not even possible, is it? You can't even hardly read the text. Okay, anyway, I was frustrated with that. But get this, 14% said, pastor said, yeah, more than 40 minutes. On the other hand... The researchers asked churchgoers their opinion. They did not say 85% less than 40 minutes. They said, oh, no, my pastor, only 66% of them said their pastor preached shorter than 40 minutes. Uh, The largest gap between perception of pastors and that of churchgoers tended towards those two extremes. Churchgoers are half as likely to say their pastor typically preaches 15 minutes to less than 20 minutes as pastors, as they are pastors say their length is. So 11% to 22%. Eh, That's interesting. How about this one? Churchgoers are six times more likely than pastors to say the typical sermon lasts at least an hour. 12% to 2%. Interestingly, some churchgoers said they liked longer sermons best. Nothing? God. We like to clap in our church, and there was not a single person clapping there. Around 1 in 10, 9%, prefer 40 to less than 50-minute messages. With 5% say say their preference is 50 minutes to less than an hour. And are you ready for this stat? Just bless my heart. Close to 1 in 8 church growers, that's 12%, want to sit down on Sundays for a message that lasts or tops one hour. Yeah. Crickets. I mean... Don't do that to a preacher. Don't give me that. Yipes. Oh, my goodness. Don't worry. We're not going to do that here, okay? But it's interesting to think about. Well, why do I share all that? Because we're saying best sermon ever, message ever, teaching ever. And when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that's what many call it. And yet, depending on your reading speed, one can read the Sermon on the Mount in 10 to 15 minutes. Maybe a little bit more than that. So it must not be length that makes 
this the best sermon ever? Of course not. It is the fact that it is Jesus Christ's words to his followers and all future followers. Scholars have called it Jesus' manifesto or the manifesto of the king. It's the crown jewel of all the teaching and preaching of Jesus. It is the best known and most extensively studied discourse in the world. And it has been the subject, are you ready for this, of thousands of books and articles. So many that now, are you ready? There are books being written about those books on the best sermon ever. In just 111 verses, we are taught what it means to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. And most importantly, the Sermon on the Mount is part of the inerrant, infallible Word of God. That's why it really matters. So we're going to look at it today and begin with chapter 5 and the first three verses. The big idea today is depending on God. And it's this, dependence on God brings Christian character and spiritual blessings to us. That sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? If we could just heed the words of Jesus. Let's look at those first three verses of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this journey. We thank you for the opportunity to be taught by your word, to proclaim it. God, I pray that we will consider what you have to say into our hearts today. God, make it personal for us today, and we're grateful. We're so grateful for the way you have preserved your word for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So number one, we want to look at the area of the sermon. I tried to get A words in, some of them worked, some of them didn't, but the area, that's in your sermon notes, the area of the sermon. So we need to go back and get a little context. Let me just tell you, we're not doing the whole book of Matthew, but remind you a little bit about Matthew, about the Gospels. You know how many Gospels are there in the New Testament? One, two, three, four. John emphasizes Jesus is the Son of God. Shows the divinity right from the start. Luke emphasizes Jesus is the Son of Man, the, the lineage to Adam. Mark, uh, we've, we've spent a little time in recently, Jesus is pictured as the suffering servant. Christ coming to serve. Remember, I came to seek and save the lost. First will be last. All those kind of things. And Matthew is, is uh, writing about the fact that Jesus is the sovereign king. In fact, he begins. He's a king from a line of kings. The original audience, of course, Matthew is especially Jewish flavor. It's to the Jewish people. Now, it's not just to those who had nothing to do with Jesus Christ and uh, he coming to earth and what he did, but actually in that audience there were some who had faith in Christ. There were some who were considering Christ. And we find out in Matthew that nothing is accidental in history. A king would come. Matthew shows us that a king has now come. And we're reminded that we are not the center of that history in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus, the Christ, is. It talks about God being sovereign and how he saves sinful 
immoral outcasts. We'll see that a little bit today. Just look at the lineage in Matthew chapter 1. Just think of Matthew, cheating, lying tax collector. There's three distinct groups in Matthew. The religious leaders who deny Jesus, crowds who follow him, but some of the multitudes and crowds who followed him did as long as they were getting something out of it. And then, of course, there's a small group of disciples and small groups of followers, many who would lose their life for him. So as we think about the Gospel of Matthew, we, we realize it's not like Paul's letter. It's not a congregational letter. It's more of a comprehensive biography, a chronological history, if you will. It shows us how Jesus came, what he did, what he said, what he accomplished in his death and resurrection. So let's look at that. To get uh, precise uh, context on what we're getting ready to jump in, go back to chapter 4, would you? Let's just look at starting in verse 23 to give us a little context to jumping into the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 23, chapter 4, Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So that's where we end up that sets up this Sermon on the Mount, and we see when Jesus saw the crowds, verse 1, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down. So picture yourself, if you will, a mountain. Have you been to a a hillside? Picture yourself on this hillside, somewhere between Capernaum and Gennesaret, with the view of the Sea of Galilee. And now we have the teacher, the rabbi, if you will. He has sat down to teach in the place of authority. All right, that was the seat of authority. He sat down to teach, as was customary. Wow, get this, the pupils stood. So I'm going to sit down right here. And you guys are going to stand for it. No, I'm not going to make you do that. All right. But that's, that's the picture we want to get. He, we just see in context, he's just finished this amazing ministry to the crowds or to the multitudes. And the people, as we saw, there were from all major regions of the country, especially the north. And he show, was, showed them compassion. In fact, when we see he saw the crowds, that's compassion. These were spiritually dark places, yet the light of the world had come. And so that's the area we see in verse 1. Then in verse 1 and 2, we see what I have entitled the audience of the sermon. The audience of the sermon. Now Jesus is preparing to teach his disciples, and I think most probably some others. I don't think it was just the 12 there. That's my opinion. I wasn't there. You weren't there. Take a look at it. If you look at the end of verse of chapter 4 and look at when the Sermon on the Mount ends at chapter 8, 1, it's talking about multitudes again. Okay? So there, there he is. And he is preparing to teach. Verse 2, it says he began to teach. The word teach means teach. <laughs> okay? All right. He is 
teaching. Hopefully every time we share a Bible study, a devotional, a message, a sermon, we are trying to teach. We have wrestled with and God has spoken to us through his word. Remember, his word is alive and active and cuts right to the bones of us, and we are sharing that, what this means to us, what God has done in our lives, and we proclaim it because we know his word goes out and doesn't return void, and so we're doing this, and here he is teaching. And it says he has seen, I mentioned that's compassion, the people. Uh, The word means seen with It's not just like I saw something, with perception. Are you familiar with perception? So he is perceiving their spiritual condition. And now Jesus launches in to this best sermon ever. The most capable teacher and preacher of all time is preparing to pour into his disciples and other followers. And he spoke to his audience with great clarity and courage. If you'll look at that, There's great clarity. There's a lot of courage. He spoke of true righteousness and godliness. I want that to set in with us today. True righteousness and godliness. That's going to set up this first beatitude when we get to it today. So, uh, do you know the story of Listerine? Anybody? How many of you in here have ever used Listerine in your life? How many of you are sitting next to someone who you wish they had used Listerine? To? No. <laughs> How many of you, all right, let's, let's, this, is a, this is more in research, not LifeWay research. How many of you use Listerine this morning? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. You've at least heard of it, right? Okay. Well, let me tell you the story of Listerine. In the late 1860s, 90% of people died after surgery from infections. Basically, Don't get surgery because it'll kill you, okay? But there was a man named Sir Joseph Lister who fought for improvements for a more sterile surgical environment. Of course, you know today how sterile that is. I mean, man, if it's not sterile, they start all over, all that kind of stuff, okay? Uh, In those days, many thought he was a nut, and they called his quest for cleanliness Listerism. Interesting. Yet we know he was right. And many people quit dying after surgery when they began to implement what he was asking for. And years later, in honor of Lister, there was a Missouri physician who created a mouthwash that killed germs, and he named it Listerine. That's the story of Listerine. Why do you tell you that? Well, think about germs, spiritual germs, cleanliness. Think about true righteousness and godliness. You see, Jesus spoke of righteousness. One might say clean, godly living, or right living, or living in obedience to God's word. All these things give us these pictures. You see, these recipients desperately need, desperately needed to hear Jesus' sermon. And so we desperately need to hear it today. Amen? Amen? May we never forget, I once was lost. But now I'm found. You remember? We just sang those words. Yes. Let us not forget that. I say it this way. A profession of faith in Christ really means nothing without obedience, holiness, departing from habitual sin. Think about that for a minute. Here's another way of stating it. I stole this from someone. If one comes away from conversion just as he was, then how can it? 
be called conversion. Think about that for a minute. Wow. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I'm going to emphasize a couple words as I read it. Therefore, if any man is be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So let us join in today and be part of Jesus' congregation, part of that audience from that day. Point number three we find in verse three. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this one today, and it's the astonishment of the sermon. We read it and go, wow, okay, but how astonishing this truly was. We have in verse three, look at it. Blessed are the poor in spirit because the, king, because the kingdom of heaven is there. Master teacher Jesus did not fire away with a negative criticism of the scribes and Pharisees. Do you see how he started the sermon? I'm so tired of sermons that all they do is beat people up instead of giving the hope of the gospel, the hope that we have in Christ, Challenges, yes, but not beating people up. And Master Teacher Jesus does not do this full. Every verse is not about those scribes and Pharisees. In fact, he begins here with positive emphasis on righteous character and the blessing that it brings to the life of the Christian. If you remember, the religious leaders had focused on externals. Remember all that? Rules, regulations. Jesus, however, focuses on attitudes and inward life. And we call this first section of this sermon, the what? You remember? It's even probably marked in your Bible, the Beatitudes. All right, what does Beatitude mean? Okay, it's a state of supreme blessedness. I want in, what about you? Blessed, I want to be blessed in that way. Blessed, I want to be one of the blessed, okay? Yes, a state of supreme blessedness. And there are nine Beatitudes. I know some of you will say eight. Your favorite scholar will say eight. I say nine. Don't sue me, please, okay? The first seven, as you look at, deal with principles of godly conduct. And the last two, I separate them, deal with persecution for godly living. So we're going to get a bunch about uh, godly conduct, but also that with that comes persecution for that godly living or conduct. In the Beatitudes, Jesus described Christian character. And it's a character that flows from within. You see, you can't just go take a class. You can't just go get a certificate. You can't just choose on your own strength, say, I will do that. No, it comes from within, the working of God within your life. We could call them, and you've maybe seen them, the B attitudes. The attitudes of how we should be. These Beatitudes call for complete self-examination of our lives. And it's my prayer that we will do exactly that. It's my prayer that each week as we come in, we won't be thinking of this or that or doing this or that, but we will be saying, God, would you examine my life today based on the words of Jesus from the best sermon ever? Mm. These Beatitudes are progressive steps in spiritual growth. Each attitude leads to the next one, to the next level of growth in logical succession. If you'll look at that, you'll see that. And I say, what a great adventure we're getting ready to go on and we'll be on. But the astonishing quality of the Beatitudes 
is the word blessed or blessed. Do you happen to see that? Just look on down at the verses we haven't read yet. Look at how many times you see that word, makarios. It means fortunate, happy. It comes from a root that's interesting. It means large. So think big fortune, large fortune. We could say that the blessed one possessing the favor of God. Or we could say one who is partaker of God's nature through faith in Christ. I was reminded of 2 Peter 1.4. Let me read that for you, 2 Peter 1.4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And I love this phrase. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world. That's a good definition of blessed or the one who's blessed. And as we get to to verse 11, the persecution part, we'll see that it's for your your Bible, depending on your version, says, God says, Jesus says, for my sake or because of me. It's kind of concluding with that. So you see from front to end talking about all this uh, makarios, blessed. Makarios is the one who is in the world yet independent of the world. True satisfaction comes from God and not from happy circumstances or good luck. So I kind of hate that happy is a word, an English word, that you kind of could translate that with. And in fact, you'll find some Bibles that do that. But we mean something different with happy, don't we? It could just be good luck. It could just be this circumstances that seems good. But that's not exactly what it's about. Makarios, blessed implies a deep, inward, abiding joy. And you know what? That's a joy that we cannot produce on our own. Humans cannot produce that on their own, okay? It's an inward contentedness not affected by circumstances, not affected by good or bad luck. Think about the... uh, the, le- the leaders of that day, their current leaders. Let's just think about them for a minute. And think about this word makarios, all right? Think about it for a minute. There were the Pharisees. That's the most famous, right? Do you remember them? They believed happiness was found in tradition. They believed happiness was found in legalism, okay? They focused on the past. And they felt that happiness came through the traditions of the fathers. And then we had the Sadducees. Remember them? Interesting. They believe happiness was found in the present. They had this liberal view, if you will, of live for now. Live for now. Remember, they didn't believe in, in something later on. Look it up if you don't know. Then we had the Essenes. Not quite as big a group, but nevertheless part of the leaders. They believe happiness was found in separating from the world. You could almost think monast- monastic. Have you, do you know about monasteries and monks? Separating from the evil of the world and all that? You know what that did for them? Not much. Why? Because they're a bunch of sinners. They're not away from the evils of the world. They might be away from this, this, and this, but there they are in that. So Essenes are like, if we just separate from all this, it'll be, we'll, we'll find this happiness. And then, of course, there were the zealots, of which one of the disciples was a zealot. And they believed happiness was found, do you remember? In revolution, revolution, in defeating Rome. 
None of these are makarios. So we get this picture, we get this amazing contrast that Jesus gives us. The Beatitudes give us an astonishing worldview. It's something that's so different. They were looking at these groups, and some of them followed these groups or were of these groups or knew about this. And here is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and he is giving this picture to them. So that leads us to verse 3, which I call uh, the dependent attitude in the word, the dependent attitude in the word. Blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The, the first beatitude here gives us, I believe, a picture of dependence. I was, I'm reminded of 1 John 2, 15 through 17. I'd like for you to jot that down and look at that this week. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says this. Listen to this command. Listen to uh, John entreating us. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. You see, it's an idea of dependency. If we think we can do it on our own, we're just part of the world. We're, we're just using human reasoning, all those kind of things. Unfortunately, a lot of us have been taught that in school, all those kind of things. No, it's dependence on God. I've been teaching on Wednesday night a parenting class, and, and it's basically got the gospel and its truths, how it affects parenting. And it's amazing how when we use the gospel and look at it through parenting, it changes so many things that we look at. First of all, you know, there's no handbook on parenting, and none of us start out with all the knowledge in the world about parenting, and, and we see that often we want to be owners of our children. It's my child, right? Instead of ambassadors. What's an ambassador? Someone who speaks, acts on behalf of the king, right? Or the president or whatever it might be. And this is true in this case when we see this dependent attitude. No, it, it's, it's not about us in the world. It's about us speaking, living on behalf of the king, the king of kings. And so there's dependence there. And then we see, first of all, poverty. Did you catch that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I want to tell you what it is not before I tell you what it is. So you might want to think about this. This is how it's been interpreted before. It's, it's kind of crazy how some people thought poor in spirit means. What it is not, okay? First of all, um, it is not that you are blessed because you are spiritually weak. That's not what poor in spirit means. Okay? Being spiritually weak is not a blessing. It's a burden. Okay? It is also not this. It's not that you are blessed because you are poor. Some people have said that. Just flat out, you're just poor. No. Poverty is not a good thing. The Bible doesn't teach that poverty is a good thing. In fact, you can be wicked and be in poverty, right? 
It is also not, number three, that you are blessed because you have this false humility. This is the one, I think, that gets spiritualized so much. You have this false humility. How, how would I say that? It's like, I'm poor in spirit, so I am a nobody. I cannot serve God. I cannot do anything. You're, you're taking that a little too far out. Let's talk about what it is. What is it to be poor in spirit? Well, I want to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you have or seen his volume on the Sermon on the Mount, it's this thick, guys. It's the biggest one. And I would like to confess to you today, I have not read every word in that volume, but I have read some of them. Here's a quote. What it is, what is this blessed, is the poor in spirit. It is a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. So what is it? Here it is. What is this poor in spirit? which blesses us. It is the person who realizes his own spiritual powerlessness and bankruptcy without God and puts his whole trust in God. So David, you get an A. You actually used the word bankrupt today as you were leading us, and that's exactly what it is. We've got to come to the conclusion that we're spiritually bankrupt, right? That's why there's so many people in our world and in the American quote-unquote church who think they're saved and act like they're saved and even say they're Christians, but you know what? They never got to the point where they believed they were spiritually bankrupt and in need of the Savior. And they thought, if I do this, this, and this, if I jump through this hoop, if I do this ritual, I will be with the Lord in heaven forever. I will be a Christian. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. So if we're going to be poor in spirit, we've got to realize how broken we are and how powerless we are and bankrupt we are. But I don't stop there. Without God. So don't go out of here saying, well, I'm a nobody. I'm just, there's no hope for me. No. It's without God. All right? What else is it? It is the person who has realized that things mean nothing. Things mean nothing, and that God means everything. Man, we here in America pursue things so much, don't we? They don't mean anything in the scope of eternity. The Creator means everything. It also means knowing yourself, a good, honest view of yourself, accepting yourself, and being yourself to the glory of God. It also means accepting others because you accept yourself. And let me say it this way. The person who is poor in spirit has a right attitude toward the will of God in his life or in her life. So, we understand that there's this righteousness and godliness that's there. So, how do you become poor in spirit? I'm going to give you three passages. There's a bunch, but I have time to give you three today. You may want to jot them down. Here's the first passage. How to become poor in spirit. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. So we see words like submit, draw near, cleanse. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Some of you have already thought of that passage, famous passage. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So now we see words like submit, draw near, cleanse, and we see words like sacrifice, transformation, renewal. And then we get to John chapter 15, a great passage on abiding with the Lord. And we look at verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Don't miss the last phrase. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So all those words we've mentioned, we get another picture of poor in spirit. It's, it's abiding or remaining dependence. So that's what it means to be blessed and poor in spirit. I pray that that is the case for you today. I pray that you truly have realized your sin, that God's Holy Spirit has truly convicted you of your sin, and you understand that you have to repent of that and turn from your way and run to God, run to Jesus and His way. And it is not something about Hoffmantown Church or another church. It's not something about this ordinance or that ordinance. It's about the fact that we have this disease, sin disease, and it's killing us. And the cure is Jesus Christ. Just what? A few weeks ago we celebrated what? We celebrated the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. The power that only Jesus has to forgive us. And to, he, that's the guy who is preaching this sermon. Now, it hasn't happened yet when he's preaching this sermon, but we already know about it, don't we? Because we know the rest of the story. And we celebrate Easter every year. They, they hadn't got that chance yet. But I want you to see how important it is. If you can't deal with sin, then you're putting something in place of it. You're banking on your meaning and purpose in life right now, but you're also banking on uh, eternity, being part of the kingdom with Jesus, God's kingdom. Think about it for a minute. You're banking on something else, something you've read or said over and over again, something you've done, penance you've paid. We could go on and on and on. The fact is that transformation, regeneration comes when we realize that we're sinners and Christ died for us. We must have a proper view of that and repent and run to him. So I ask you to go back to whenever that was. For some of you, it's been very recently. For some of you, a long time ago. Never forget that we ran with our sin. And that's not, some of you, I know some people are thinking, well, there's an action. No, we ran with our sin because God, God showed it to us. And we had the faith, right, to say, forgive me and save me. We know in Ephesians 2.8, even the faith that we had to do that, it's a gift from God. That's what has to happen. And then I remind you, as we go through the Beatitudes, that it should be evident of the conversion that happens in our lives. So I want to encourage you to think about that today. Don't rely on grandma. Don't rely on going to VBS as a kid. Don't rely on being a member of a church or doing this good deed or that good deed. 
rely on the fact that it's Jesus who has the power to save us and we can repent and turn to him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It is really quiet in here right now. I prayed that we would be under conviction. Maybe we are a little bit today. Maybe you're processing. But let's finish off with that, uh, what I call reward there. So blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This promise is at the beginning of the Beatitudes and towards the end of the Beatitudes as well. And I think it's Matthew's way of saving. He liked to use the kingdom of heaven a lot. Other gospel writers use the kingdom of God more than that. And you can kind of interchange those, if you will. And what's interesting, in this verse it says, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs, it's, the kingdom is in present tense. And John the baptizer proclaimed it, said it's at hand, and it arrived with Jesus. Jesus said that as well. And in verses 4 through 9, the promises then are in future tense. So I, I need you to get this picture, if you can, of these things, okay? Of course, the future fulfillment comes with the return of Jesus. Amen? Are you anybody looking forward to that? As he ushers in his kingdom. But let us not also forget, let us know that, yes, there's future eternal blessings but also, as we follow this best sermon ever, we realize there are great and wonderful blessings in our present. Now think about this. this even this verse, such a different view than the people's view of that day. They were viewing this materialistic, militant rule freeing them from Rome. So be blessed by this promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Have you been blessed by that? Are you poor in spirit? Have you realized your spiritual bankruptcy? Has God nudged you now? He, he doesn't appear. It's, this is not Star Wars. It's not Princess Leia appearing. He doesn't appear and look at us and say that, but we know, don't we, in our heart. We know that God has shown us that we're sinners in need of a Savior and a Lord. If that's happened in your life, be blessed by this promise. If not, consider that today. Let me close in this way. The best sermon ever reminds us that dependence on God instead of ourselves brings Christian character and spiritual blessings to us. So I would plead with you today to allow God to work in and through you today. And I want to ask you, where is your hope today? Where is it? Is it in some worldly kingdom or stuff or a certain relationship or bank account or good luck versus bad luck or good circumstances versus bad circumstances where are you finding your hope and what are you depending upon I don't know if you realize the pressure to stand before a group of people whether it's two people or two thousand and proclaim God's word do you realize what kind of pressure that is You'll think about that for a minute. 
There is no way to get up and do that unless there's dependence upon God. Now, there are some folks out there that are pretty slick, and they can communicate quite well and do it. But I'm telling you, for anyone who's trying to rightly divide the Word of God, there's great pressure. And so I am taught this lesson on dependence upon God every single week. And I pray that you will, as well, as you open your Bible, as you, as you think about what does that mean to me, how do I apply that to my life, how does that transform me in such a way that I might be winsome to win some, that someone out there needs to know the gospel, the good news, what Jesus taught. I pray that that will become more and more alive in our lives. So what, where's your hope? What are you depending on? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have preserved and given us your complete revelation here on earth for us, your word, the Holy Bible, our Bible, and in particular, we're especially grateful today and in the weeks to come for Jesus' great teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. God, much of it is familiar to us, and I pray that it will actually become not familiar, but transformational in our lives. And today, God, help us realize of our spiritual poverty today. And God, give us genuine humility to run to you with deep sorrow over our sins to run to you and ask you to change our lives to, to regenerate us, to save us, God. We know that it is only you that can do that. We know that you prompt us to understand these things, and we ask for that today. And God, I pray for those of us who are believers, maybe for many years, that we would not forget where we once were. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And that we would remember that you have much to teach us. And that as we go through some difficult verses, that we will realize your goal is true righteousness, and that we would be more and more godly in our lives as you work in and through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.